So, hey, hello, I'm David Denon. Uh, today I'm talking to Will Kitchen, who's a film studies scholar in England. Uh, he's written a book called uh, Romanticism and Film, which hopefully you can see here. Um, a lovely cover. And we're going to talk a little bit today about some of the ideas in the book. So uh, do you want to say anything else about yourself before we get started? Like, uh, are you, well, like where you're teaching or anything like that? Um, sure, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm Will Kitchen. I'm uh, currently a teaching fellow in film studies at the University of Southampton. Um, and yeah, Romanticism and Film was my first book, and it's basically based on my PhD. I was quite lucky to get it out straight away. So um, yeah, it's exciting to talk about it. Yeah, and I've, I've been curious. I don't think I've asked you before. Uh, Will and I have, uh, know each other, so but uh, I uh, haven't. I don't think I asked you before how this project came about. Like, what got you interested in this? How it started? Well, when you're thinking about a PhD, I suppose the best way to to work on is to build on existing interests. I've always found that some of the most uh, productive works you do are not something that's it's out of the blue, but something you realise you've been thinking about for a long time. You think, oh, I can turn this into an academic uh, study as well. I was, I've been a fan of um, Liszt's music for since about 2010. I first discovered him as an undergraduate, and I, uh, you know, bought all, lots of CDs. I was a bit of a collector, and um, read Alan Walker's three-volume biography. I joined the Liszt Society in the UK in 2013, and I've been a member ever since then. They have these annual. Uh, piano recitals and uh, annual dinners and I used to go to some of those events and um, I, stopped, I tried to teach myself Liszt's piano sonata in B minor. I'm a very amateur pianist but um, uh, that was a major challenge and I managed to get most of it done but I'm, I've forgotten most of it now but uh, yeah this interest was already there as I was doing my undergrad and my MA studies and so when it came to um, a PhD there were certain connections that I wanted to uh, that I realised could link into what I've been studying as well. And these two worlds sort of came together in quite a nice way. Hmm. Okay, interesting. And what, uh, of course, we'll talk maybe more about List later, because that's a big part of your book. But what drew you, do you think, to the music of List in particular? Obviously, a pretty personal taste, I suppose. I really like... Um, I started out learning classical music with uh, people like Debussy and Prokofiev, but uh, it was quite a, a bit of a, you know, people build their identities, as, as Morse Peckham knew, by, um, you know, selecting certain things that uh, interest them, and then they can use to distinguish themselves and build a sense of identity. So uh, I was um, selecting between the bits of classical music that were my thing and the bits that weren't, and I took against Brahms and Schumann and the, the conservative side of the War of the Romantics and more attracted to um, uh, Liszt and Wagner, the more progressive side, and realised that uh, these interesting personal tastes had kind of structural coherences that then you want to find out more about and how they sort of map together and relate to other things. So Liszt's music was obviously very focused on um, virtuosity and uh, melody and dynamism, a sort of pianistic uh, sense of structure and development. And uh, it was quite scandalous as well, which made it stand out from the rather, uh, typically thought rather staid and, and boring world of classical music. It was a bit of an exciting, exciting, um, an exciting, uh, something rather different, but obviously people like uh, Ken Russell were keen to explore in their work. So 
again, the more I found out about it, the more I realized that uh, these kind of things led to more interesting areas and perhaps weren't quite as simple as they first seemed. So it drew on that kind of sense of difference, really, primarily. Okay. And, yeah, we'll talk. Um, since, your, since your book is uh, about ro uh, romanticism and film, and, of course, Liszt plays a big part of that in that, Wagner and also uh, as well, uh, do you want to say a little bit about, I mean, what do you, uh, how do you see romanticism as a cultural phenomenon? Mm. I mean, what's your idea about that? Well, obviously a big part of romanticism, as we currently understand it, is the fact that it is um, this, this multiple fluid concept that every book you pick up on romanticism will have a different idea about what it's about. So it's really impossible to tie it down to any particular definition and you pick up any of the standard works on romanticism you realize that rather quickly that it is this mutable thing that everyone disagrees about and that's part of what makes it exciting that you can pull it in lots of different directions um and obviously a big part of what romanticism means to me today was derived from as we are working on now the, the work of Morse peckham who seems to provide one of the most convincing and um engaging and uh, exciting interpretations of romanticism basically the some of the, the yeah, northup fry mh abrams those classical interpretations from the english academic tradition tend to pin it down to quite a specific area which obviously has overlaps as well with various things but peckham saw romanticism as this way of opening up some of the biggest questions that academic uh, um and philosophical problems that these kind of issues can ask, like uh, the, the the meaning of meaning itself and behavior and the idea of having interests and these really unusual, original, ambitious questions that romanticism seemed to um, seem to crystallize in lots of different ways. Obviously, the, a big part of romanticism's mutability and this fact that it is so expansive is that it kind of seems a bit like a... Um, an what Karl Popper would call an irrefutable theory, a kind of uh, an explanatory concept or form that you can apply to anything. And if you can do that, if it doesn't seem to have many limits, we've got to question whether it's really that useful. So it's it's a the, the ongoing project that we seem to be having in, in lots of different works is how we use romanticism and how we need to be careful about using it and what it can help us with and what it can't. But the fact that it has no boundaries and can open up these huge worlds of, of, of meaning and language and behavior, culture of all and art of all kinds, it does seem like something that it's so appealing because you can take it anywhere you want to. Hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the, the big things for me and you do write about this in your book as well. I think you have a section on uh, cultural transcendence, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the idea of cultural transcendence and kind of the problematizing of all our normal or conventional ways of thinking about things or explaining things and trying to innovate new kinds of behavior was, a, um, I think, a key, maybe a key um, aspect of romanticism that you can see continuing into the 20th century, and I would say people like Ken Russell, who, who you write a lot about in your book. Um, I didn't yeah, cultural, trans yeah, sorry, yeah, cultural transcendence seems like one of the more 
one of the obviously it's one of the big key issues in, in Peckham's writings on romanticism and it is probably the idea that is he ties it down to quite a specific formulation in terms of you know um taking that emergent behavior building a group of followers propagandizing it it's quite specific the way he uses it but in a more general term i think it is very applicable in the ways you're talking about in terms of you know um, militating against the status quo, rejecting the world as it is. I think that's quite a, a useful way into romanticism. Yeah, I think so as well. And uh, and getting into film, it's an interesting... Um, yeah, how romanticism relates to film is a really interesting question. Film comes along kind of at the end of the 19th century um, or early 20th century after this long period of kind of romantic innovation. Um, as well as other kinds of backlashes and so on and uh, kind of modernism which in some ways grows out of romanticism and uh, do you want to say a little bit how you see the beginning of film and film music and you talk about how film composers tried to legitimate their work by referring back to people like Wagner do you want to say a little about I thought that's a really interesting yeah. part of your of your book yeah, it's um, there's a number of topics overlapping there again. I think that uh, in terms of film coming along at the end of the Romantic century, basically, people tend to think of cinema as being the the um, the, the the one of the big elements in the creation of the twentieth century modernity, modernism, the sort of emergence of technological. Um, progress and art and the interactions between them. The writings of famous and very influential scholars like uh, Walter Benjamin were influential in seeing that, you know, building a cultural climate where film was received as the epitome of new modern 20th century technology and its relationship with new emergent forms of culture. But as I say in the book, the important thing is to remember that although those explanations might have uh, a lot of truth content there's a very significant degree to which film is also um, developing and completing aesthetic trends that developed throughout the 19th century as well in terms of you know the total work of art the Wagnerian imperative to mix all of the genres together to create this um, total um, work of art the Gestamtkunst work the idea of um, film being the seventh art really comes from that 19th century tradition of mixing them together that sense of multimedia um, uh, inheritance and mixing breaking the boundaries between artistic forms and obviously it then moves on to the technological side as well but again those are developing throughout the 19th century the um the illusion of movement through various technological devices like the kinetoscope, they have strong links to 19th century traditions too. So the book begins with a kind of intervention in breaking that connection with thinking of the film, of cinema as the beginning of something, the beginning of what happened in the 20th century, and thinking about film as an important development of things that were happening long before that. Mm, yeah, so kind of a culmination of yeah, as well as yeah. the beginning of something new yeah but of course these things it, it wasn't it didn't really culminate in terms of finishing anything obviously yeah, these yeah. similar ideas have moved on to the internet and virtual reality new media so uh, those traditions and trajectories are still ongoing and relevant to, to today in terms of the point about um uh what was it the influence of classical music on film yeah, and romantic music, and when mm -hmm. people turn to Wagner, 
or other romantic composers yeah mm -hmm. well at the beginning of um cinema history of course people were very concerned to some people were very concerned to legitimate film and film studies as a you know a valuable object of academic analysis and artistic practice uh, the first chapter uh, the second chapter of the book is is really delves into the idea of taking the history of film music and the, the legacy of romantic music as a kind of case study in how discursive forces frame cinematic production as a legitimate form of artistic practice and scholarly analysis basically and how they appropriated the idea of of wagnerian sym symphonic form and operatic aesthetics to sort of legitimate film and to frame the practices of composers and critics and um, film theorists and how those were those that it wasn't just a natural progression from you know Wagner did this they framed Wagner as a kind of father of film music but introducing Liszt into that discussion as a way of saying it wasn't just Wagner doing this people have talked about the influence of um Italian melodrama um Italian um, opera um American melodrama um and various other other forms of uh, classical music in the 19th century and popular culture as influence on on film as well, not just Wagner and what he was doing with the um, the Gestamtkunstwerk, but introducing Liszt as well as um, and his pro symphonic poem project as a way of um, just expanding the debate a, bit, a little bit and adding something new as well. The symphonic poems um, are obviously these, um, there's the, the new genre of classical music that Liszt invented in the 18, um, in the mid 18th, in the mid 19th century when he would take a uh, an existing literary or or aesthetic idea and then create a a, a piece of single movement symphonic um, music that's expressed that same poetic idea so it was about trying to appropriate some of the the values of of, of language and expression and history and myth and add them into um, classical music and then there are various connections to be drawn with film music from then of course yeah, it does seem to make a uh, have a strong maybe utility, or that idea has a strong kind of connection or utility when it comes to film music, where you're trying to illustrate something that already kind of exists. Yeah, provide a soundtrack, as we now say. Yeah, <laughs> some of the most characteristic aspects of classical mu of um, cinematic music seem to come from that classical tradition as well, like uh, the idea of Mickey Mousing, that where um, a, a particular visual gesture or event is then mimicked by the soundtrack that uh, there's quite a strong uh, prelude to that in the work of people like richard strauss as well oh yeah yeah yes yeah yeah it's funny it was funny to to read about that i um a lot of the compositions you mentioned i remembered from playing in high school in the band and orchestra in high school so it was funny mm. just how alive that tradition still i mean that music still is to at least for my, I don't know, it's probably the same if your classical music doesn't change that much, I guess. Um, so maybe people are still playing the same music, but it's funny, at least through my generation, we we're still playing this. Um, that type of music was very popular in high schools, the Richard Richard, Richard Strauss and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, um, the, the convergence of historical events there was quite sort of, um, it kind of created this baptismal connection between the two, basically. People still think of Hollywood today as this, you know, you go to the cinema, you see a film, it, it will have a, a, a score that in 
that drew draws on the history of European orchestral music. Uh, to a, 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 obviously, there are exceptions, but because in that baptismal moment back in the nineteen twenties and thirties, when sound was moving onto film, and they were making these soundtracks that fitted the sound, the the uh, particular um, stories being told, there was this. Um, at the same time, the classical music itself was moving away to more abstract and experimental forms with them, like Stravinsky and Schoenberg. Hollywood was appropriating the old romantic canon for its own purposes. So that's part of a reason why um, uh, classical music wanted to move on to something different, because Hollywood was um, Hollywood was corrupting those old forms, perhaps. Yeah, and then it seemed like Hollywood found a use for those new things as well, like atonal-type music found its own mm. kind of niche in certain uh, certain uses in film music or spooky scenes yeah. and stuff like that Hollywood uh, will appropriate everything given to him devouring yeah. <laughs> new innovations in uh, absolutely <laughs> probably um, the best example is um uh, the avant-garde music uh, in uh, the shining for example right yeah i was thinking of movies like that yeah <laughs> definitely and yeah maybe we can move on to list which i think was maybe the most, I mean, there's many interesting parts of your book to me. Um, probably the part that was like most powerful, I think, was your discussion of how Liszt fits into this and especially how Liszt was portrayed in movies. So not only was his mu uh, music used fairly commonly in, uh, in movies and movie soundtracks, but he also was portrayed along with other romantic composers in films which i thought was quite fascinating and to look at the different types of films so the more like hollywood studio uh style of like biopic i guess we call them um compared to something more um i don't know how you would describe ken russell but um yeah how would you describe how would you describe lists move and maybe other romantic composers move into um, kind of the standard Hollywood style. What were, why was Hollywood trying to make movies of romantic composers, movies about romantic composers? Well, for Hollywood, there was a, a particular cycle of, of films, of composer biopics made in the 40s and 50s called song films. And every studio seemed to have their own um, attempt to make a film in this tradition. You know, they would take the life of Schumann, Liszt, or Chopin, or Wagner, and make a big prestige Hollywood production, uh, a lavish period drama based on the life of these composers. And primarily, it was a, a way of um, you know developing a, a more cultured audience because you know um, after the after the, the Paramount decrees and so forth, the, the rise of television, Hollywood was fighting for um, new audiences, and so they were offering these lavish big historical spectacles that television often didn't have the money to, to, to offer instead. So they were looking for ways of attracting audiences by looking at you know, big, impressive historical spectacles that also, and they went for biblical epics for that kind of thing as well, but they were particularly focused with composers on building a sense of cultural legitimacy. They were saying, you know, classical music is, is, is high culture and cinema can offer you know, something for people who enjoy that kind of thing as well. Um, so uh, why list in particular was the focus for this analysis of this subject and it has been explored extensively by um, writers like um, john tibbet mm. um, 
But the reason why list in particular is useful as a sort of way to move into this discussion, apart from these connections I'm drawing throughout the book, is that list, again, epitomizing certain elements of romanticism is this very eclectic figure. His cultural image, as I call it, pulls in so many different directions at once. The fact that he um, was this um, prototypical celebrity type of uh, the touring musician, which is reflected today in in um, the, the legacy of pop music um, and rock music stardom. Um, but also at the other end of the spectrum, you've got him becoming an abbe, you know, taking holy orders and becoming this... Um, isolated venerable um spiritual artist um isolated in his his ivory tower basically so there's a huge variety of representational tropes to draw on with list and it's it's a shame we've only had we only had room in the book for two major case studies song without end and listomania but they do provide two pretty um they epitomize both ends of the spectrum, basically. And there are examples scattered about things in between and uses of his music as well. But the fact that Liszt was so diverse and unusual as a composer gives him a real advantage for looking at these kind of debates. Because you know, composers like, um, as, as co colorful and uh, interesting as someone like Wagner was, a lot of composers did have quite boring lives. You've got someone like Bruckner or Ravel. They don't make very interesting cinematic material, whereas Liszt, on the other hand, he's a very exciting and colorful character for Hollywood narrative. Yeah, and you can, uh, filmmakers can like make, you'll find what they want in him. There's like, as you said, he's very diverse. And yeah, yeah I did watch the, uh, was it Song Without End? Yeah, I watched Song with. Oh, good. Things. Yes. Um, yeah, I. It's interesting to look back on it and to compare it with Listomania. Yeah, Song Without End. Um, I found it. I mean, it was a well-made movie. I found you know that has that Hollywood craft, the classic kind of studio craft behind it. So it's a really, I mean, well-made movie. It's beautiful. Um, I have to say, I kind of got bored <laughs> by the end of it. <laughs> Um, that's completely understandable yes it's not the most exciting film i admit <laughs> yeah so they i mean they have had their they found something they wanted in list i guess portraying the more religious his development toward a more religious um kind of pers person persona um they do portray kind of his wild and crazy side to some extent but it's more mm. i mean the, the kind of the trajectory of the movie is um I don't know. How would you describe what they're trying to do in that movie, or how they're? What parts of list do you think they were emphasizing? I know you talk about this in the book. Well, obviously, Song Without End is a very strange list biography, primarily because of the uh, of the casting. I think Dirk Bogart is a really odd casting choice, okay. and the fact that he's got this sort of um, uh, uh, James Dean style haircut or Elvis style haircut rather than lists iconic um, long hair is very odd and this is this this is a, a good example of one of the major themes i'm developing throughout the book is the idea of explaining things audio uh, visual representation as a form of explanation and how various factors impact upon how things are explained to viewers and how they contextualize them and make sense of them so the fact that why did they change lists hairstyle from the iconic image of him with the long white hair in a later age, at least, to the the more modern 
sort of um, Bobby Soxer um, matinee idol look obviously is to do with precisely that is to do with tying in with existing schemas of what people think of as a you know a, a, a young attractive um, impressive artistic figure so it maybe would have looked very strange and um, unusual to see Doug Bogart with the long hair but it fits more in with there's the obviously the thing is more pronounced with um Roger Daltrey later in the Listomania film, because again, you've got Dirk Bogart and List sort of melding together, forming a sort of hybrid figure where it's it's not entirely one, it's not entirely the other, they reflect back and forth. And of course, there's a long discussion about how Dirk Bogart was um, um, felt relatable with the List character because he had that similar kind of matinee idol um, history as a young act as a young actor. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the dynamics between the choices made in representing something and uh, how that affects historical representation. You know, Hollywood films and well, films of all kinds are very interesting ways of looking at these kind of things. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, the, the casting choices in um, both Song Without End and Listomania are interesting. Um, yeah, and uh, very different. It's, it was, I find it quite I don't know if ironic is the right word, but by the time that Ken Russell was making Listomania, um, I mean, it was more uh, at least acceptable among younger generations to have long hair again. So it's like the style had come <laughs> come back, at least for um, younger generations. This is something I talked about on a, a previous um, um, episode on my on my channel about how long hair was like a sign of rebellion after well during the 1960s we'd had this at least in uh the united states there'd been a long period where short hair was kind of the norm i think it was tied to um the world wars and how it became a sign of um just kind of like civic mindedness and patriotism and readiness to serve in the military which had short hair for various hygienic reasons and so forth so it was kind of normal for guys to have short hair i think by the time Dirk Bogard was uh, playing, that was just 1960 or late 50s when they were making the movie. Um, it would have been, I think, probably, I don't know if I can't uh, remember if films that during that time, historical films in the 50s, if people would have long hair. I'm trying to think of an example, but I'm not sure. Weavy um, locks was the kind of thing, wasn't it? The kind of, um, not long hair, but sort of... Uh... No, I'd have to think of some examples, but uh, yeah, you're, you're right. There's definitely a, an interesting um, discussion to have about you know the, the changing ideas of, of fashion and their relationship with the values of youth and rebellion and that kind of thing. It's good to see that um, List has a role to play in the history of youth hair length culture in the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, Listomania, the other film that we've already alluded to, maybe we should say a little more about that. I also watched Listomania, which I found more um, entertaining to me. I think some people will find it quite of a strange movie. Of course, a Ken Russell movie, if any, if people know about Ken Russell. So it's sort of the, in some ways, the typical Ken Russell movie. But I find it, um, I mean, it's a very lively movie compared to something like Song Without End, which is more subdued, even though it shows some of List's wild side. It's a more kind of a level movie I find whereas um uh Listomania is kind of like non-stop craziness and which I 
you know, I just love the energy. And it's also, I feel romantic. I feel like um, Ken Russell was a romantic making a film about a romantic. I mean, that's why I want to appreciate about the film. And what would you he was, want to He was very self-conscious about that too. He was obviously a big, he was a big lover of the romantic tradition and he, his, his music was his, um, his sort of main love apart from film you know he wanted to find a, a musical a classical musical expression of making films he writes a lot about this and how you know he was inspired in his approach to filmmaking by romantic aesthetics itself yeah and he made um oops sorry i was uh just checking on something and made caused a little bit of a glitch but let's uh yeah keep going so um yeah, he had made, uh, I wasn't able to find a, a kind of a version online, but he had made a film of Mahler, and I saw he made um, a film in the 80s about romantic writers, which I haven't had a chance to see yet, but it sounds uh, at least interesting in concept. Um, yeah, so he was definitely uh, into the romantic thing. We talked about cultural transcendence before, and I would relate what Ken Russell was doing to a kind of cultural transcendence. He's trying to do something new and pushing the boundaries and making things more and more extreme and um, just combining things that you wouldn't normally put together. The beginning of the film right away starts with um, kind of this duel between Liszt and the Count. Um, but you've got this kind of... Uh, western hoedown music which is narrating what's happening so you've got all these different elements um combined together in just this rapid way kind of constantly shifting way which is something very different of course than what you got in those song films like the bio uh, composer biopics from the 50s and 60s uh, you know 50s mainly in hollywood absolutely a big part of what makes um romantic that kind of thing romanticism is it's not so much the fact that uh, the whole there's a very complex question about whether romanticism is tied to a, a the relationship with the past basically there are there have been several interpretations of romanticism that have focused on its its connection with the past and how looking back at a romanticized nostalgic conception of the past and appropriating old forms like the forms of silent comedy classical hollywood in listomania's context how they are definitive of romanticism but i think the big lesson that morse peckham's conception of cultural transcendence teaches us is that it's not about the relationship with the past that's important for romanticism but the relationship with the present with what exists it's about negating the current conditions of um, socioeconomic reality rather than valuing the past for its own sake the past valuation of the past and past forms and difference and melding old forms together is a functional it's a method of negating the present and i think that's a big important element of romanticism that can sometimes be overlooked and that's what i'm exploring with my new book projects as well and not just our work on beckham yeah yeah, so maybe I'll ask you about that as well. But yeah, it's worth emphasizing what you just said, that why romanticism remains relevant and why you can see it as not just something that occurred during the kind of late uh, late 18th century to through part of the 19th century, 
but that was kind of the first powerful, and you can see that early period as the first powerful instance of this um, negation of the present, as you say, that sort of the negation of conventional ideologies or explanations. And um, so I think that's why Ken Russell, Ken Russell's film remains vital in a way, at least for those of us who like um, that, um, who feel ourselves tied to romanticism in some way, because it's, uh, I think even still today, it's kind of surprising even after, how many years has it been? Like 40, 50 years now? Yeah. Is it that is that possible that it's been 50 years ago? 70? Yeah, 75. So my math is terrible. My, the reason I'm in arts and humanities <laughs> is I can't do maths. I'm really, yeah. five plus five makes me makes my brain freeze sometimes. Yeah, but <laughs> decades ago, and it still seems, I mean, it still seems pretty new to me. I mean, it reminds me of, uh, I guess I was going to say it reminds me of the early romantic writings like um, early Wordsworth and Coleridge, early Carlyle, where it's just like, uh, well, it's still kind of fresh and today even. Um, it still can surprise you. It's not like um, much of what you are used to reading, used to experiencing. It still provides something new even after you know, a hundred years in the case, uh, you know, more than a hundred years in the case of the early romantics, 200 years. Um, that sense of seeming fresh, seeming new, seeming different to anything we associate with that particular period is an interesting way into romanticism. Mm -hmm. There's the idea, there's a, a quote that Stravinsky used about Beethoven's great fugue, the Corsa uh, Fuga, if I'm a terrible German pronunciation, but he said it was a contemporary piece of music that would be contemporary forever. And that's an interesting way into thinking about why it would be this perfect romantic ideal, not only just to do with the, the thematic ideas of striving and insufficiency, but to do with the fact that the fact that it, 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 it sort of stands out from the historical moment and doesn't seem to fit there or anywhere. There's a, a similar argument to be made about you know, Ken Russell's things, perhaps, and in also in terms of British cinema, something I've looked at in my second book which is finished but not published yet is uh, lindsay anderson who's a very similar director in certain ways that kind of romantic sense of standing out and not fitting with his historical moment yeah uh, that's quite interesting do you see any do you pay much attention to um kind of current filmmaking i've heard i don't pay that much attention anymore i, I was much more interested in film when i was younger I don't pay too much attention to newer films. I've heard some complaints that it's become like increasingly, I mean, the power of Hollywood studios is increasing in more and more. I mean, people of course can do independent stuff even easier maybe than they used to be able to do with um, digital stuff. Um, I do hear complaints that um, kind of getting new like unusual things seen is more of a problem because of just the way the streaming services are set up in the studios and all of that. Do you see any, um, are there any filmmakers, kind of contemporary filmmakers you see as continuing this tradition of people like Ken Russell or Lindsay Anderson or? My focus has not been so much on contemporary cinema, but you're absolutely right in terms of, you know, the, the 
that the, the idea of getting films made and seen today is is easier than in the past because of advances in technology and social media and, and various forms of um, you know, globalization that help these things along. But the fact that, you know, the ch- because the choice and the scope is growing so wide, the, the, it's getting harder and harder to find a big audience that makes your film successful. But of course, criticisms that Hollywood is is harmful or dumbing down or not, you know, doing sort of non-romantic um, harmful things have been around since, you know, Theodore Dorner was um, critiquing Hollywood for very similar reasons. Uh, I think that in terms of romantic films today, the place I would look is in films that are critical of capitalism. I think a big part of what makes Lindsay Anderson and the, the director I'm comparing him with, Arthur Penn, romantic in the way I explain it in the new in the new book is the fact that they are their films are critical of capitalism and that's not specific to them of course there are loads of the other films that you could look at but I'm developing an attitude a new schema of romanticism that builds on Morse Peckham and what I've explained already in, in in the first book about how romanticism is tied to the idea of capitalism as a kind of antagonist and how they adopt concepts from each other and have a mutually determined relationship. So I think the dynamics between romanticism and critique of capitalism is an important element to look at in terms of cultural products these days. Hmm. Okay, that's a really interesting point. Um, Yeah, the critique of capitalism, of course. Um, Yeah, in a way... It's uh, an old idea, of course, that's been around, kind of developed probably uh, along with Romanticism in some ways in the uh, 19th century as um, kind of the modern system was getting set up. Um, Definitely people like Carlyle and other Romantics were very critical of um, Romanticism. Of course, Marx in some ways was tied to Romantic philosophy. Um, kind of interact, uh, responding to people like Hegel. Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a, it is an interesting through line, I guess, I guess from uh, um, romanticism through to today. The antagonism between romanticism and capitalism was um, prefaced, I think, by Marx. He mentioned in the, again, my terrible German, Grundreiser. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this idea about um, romanticism being a kind of eternal antagonist of the forces of capitalism and how they'll hold each other in check. I'm not sure how extensively he develops it, but um, some writers like Michael Lowy and Robert Sayer have developed this. And uh, the uh, But their approach, again, I'm, I'm critiquing that because it's tied to that conception of romanticism as being tied to glorification of the past rather than negation of the present so yeah these are still work in progress but this is a question that i'm going to tackle with my second book which is um finished but um not published yet yeah all right well uh yeah very interesting um uh discussion i think thanks for taking the time to talk again the book was uh called romanticism and film Uh, Some really interesting stuff in there, again, about uh, the beginning of film and film music, how it relates to romanticism, uh, looking at the impact of people like Wagner on film music, and especially focusing on Liszt, which uh, provides a really interesting kind of narrative, kind of uh, uh, looking at um, 
how Liszt appeared in early film music, and then how films were made about Liszt in different ways, bringing out different sides of Liszt, and um, kind of using Liszt for their own purposes or different kinds of purposes. Um, so yeah, it's a really a uh, fascinating element of your uh, of your book, and um, yeah. So thanks for uh, taking some time to talk to me about it. Do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, no, no, I think that's uh, covered some a lot of the key points. And um, thank you very much for for interviewing me for this. I've, I've enjoyed this a lot, David. Thank you. All right. Well, hopefully we'll do it again. We can uh, sometime. We'll talk about one of your uh, other books. All right. Love to. Maybe we can talk about our our book at some yes, point in the future. Book, yes. <laughs> so Will and I are writing a book together, so hopefully we'll uh, talk about that as well. <laughs> well Moss Peckham. So yes. hopefully you'll we'll be hearing more about him soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs>